back to a whole lot of learn the podcast where we try improving ourselves as teachers and navigate this whole teaching thing. I am here with my student in quotes uh, for this semester, um, whose name is Tristan. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Tristan, and I have uh, spent the semester working with David uh, on my writing and reading. Well, thank you for working on me with it because this is also my project. I got something out of it too, but. <laughs> I just kind of wanted to ask at the end of the semester, uh, what do you think is your reading and writing identity, just to kind of share with our audience? Um, well, I, I think, first of all, I think they're innately separate, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with my writing identity. Um, well, I think as a writer, I, uh, I'm a very flowery writer, a bit of a, a comma addict. Um, I think I just like to, to, to sit down and, and write, um, but I don't always have the uh, stamina to keep going very wrong so long so i think i i write in kind of spurts um as for reading um i love fiction i love historical fiction um i'll happily sit down with a book and stay in the same place reading it for hours when i can so almost the opposite as a reader um than i am as a writer so you say you have like a lot of stamina reading stuff just longer texts yeah i think so i can i can and it's different if it's like a school text because those are meant to be uh, incredibly hard to sit down and read. But <laughs> um, with with something that I want to read, I'll happily disappear for hours into it. Yeah, that stamina exists. So I maybe this is uh, too judgmental of academia, but I remember you said in one of our sessions where you're talking about that you would sometimes slog through academic texts in quotes if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, could you describe that process or like what it feels like to kind of slog oh, through something? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know that scene in The NeverEnding Story where the horse gets eaten by the swamp and dies? No, but I can imagine it. Okay, well, that's what reading an academic source is like for me. You just kind of get stuck, and even if you're moving forward, um, it feels like you're moving forward so slowly through this this mire of boringness and i think uh, a lot of these academic writers really struggle to make their work at all engaging to read so it just it, it feels like you're marching through a swamp when you try and read some of these that's that's fair um i mean i have done that myself for other research stuff and but that's completely different from the view of the student i guess but um i guess my next question would be from there is how many um academic texts did you read this semester since i know you were going through oh, a lot God of geez. academia dozens um i've got like 20 academic works checked out from the library there's probably another 20 textbooks and there's all the sources online i've read so you know at least four dozen probably and i i suspect i'm probably over 100 academic sources read this semester um seeing as how i'm working on three research papers uh including an honors thesis along with my classes. I'd say it's, it's been a lot of, a lot of academic thesis. All right. Now my next question is how many academic texts uh, did you read in your first semester of college? Not nearly as many. Um, you know, the first semester, right now I'm in all these papers are because I'm in an upper division, a lot of upper division courses. Um, so that wasn't a thing my first semester. So, um, a lot of the, the sources I was reading then, um, well, they were less academic in nature, for one. Um, a lot of them were shorter, and frankly, there just weren't as many. 
Okay. How how many bouts uh, next year, like the start of sophomore year for you? Um, I think it ramped up a fair bit. I, I took a uh, historical thinking and writing class, which is kind of the introduction to writing thesis papers. So I think that alone probably increased the number of academic sources I was looking at, um, as well as being in higher level classes, meaning more independent, self-guided research work. I didn't hear about that. Okay. That's interesting to hear about. I just, because there is like some research about that, about um, kind of having that self-efficacy as like reader and reading and writing. Um, so there's like some research from uh, like Ahmed Abdul Latif Sabti, who talks about how there's um, specifically with like, uh, like emergent bilinguals, the term they use is uh, English foreign language learners, but uh, I just prefer emerging bilinguals. So they there was this investigation where they found that anxiety, motivation, self-efficacy are need to be talked about or like in writing. But I think that like self-efficacy piece was something I hadn't considered because I, I took anxiety and motivation as given. You got to talk about that, but just kind of making giving students that agency to write. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Or like, is that useful or is that just something else? I think it's incredibly important to uh, foster self-driven writing in, in students, and especially in my major as a history major, um, but really in any area, I, I think it's very important for you to be able to give your students the freedom um, to write on their own um, and and drive themselves. And a lot of these classes I take do foster that by having these research projects that you don't check in with your teacher with, that you just write over the course of the year. And I think it, it develops some very good writing habits uh, and really helps train people as a writer as well as time management. Having done those, would you say you've kind of like grown those skills then? I, I think so. Um, I think I've always been able to pound out an academic paper when I've needed to, but uh, I think I've been better this year at, at being able to space out my writing and do it on my own time instead of just trying to do it all at once. Um, I think I've been able to work on a single paper over a period of time, and I think it overall increases the quality. So another thing I, I've learned about you this semester but which like I had an inkling of before, but I didn't know for sure till now. Is you have a really good breadth of vocabulary, like <laughs> in reading and writing, because um, I've learned like several new words from you. So thank you for that, first of all. But I I just kind of wanted to bring up like there is some kind of academic research behind that that, that um the skill of breadth and vocabulary is pretty useful. Like there's some research from uh, Catherine S. Binder who talks about um. That breadth of vocabulary or breadth of like, or your like lexicon can just help with like decoding information. And then also for younger students, um, like learning phonics and such. Um, I, I guess I was just going to ask, seeing the effects of like expansive, of your expansive lexicon, do you think that vocab instruction is important to reading? Yay or nay? You know, I don't. I, I think... A big vocabulary has a place, uh, and I think it can certainly help your writing seem more formal and mature, but I I don't think it's, and I think it's important, but I don't think it's necessary, and I think you can be uh, an excellent writer, and even a superior writer, it's, uh, people who use big words, even if your vocabulary is a little more limited, um, as long as you're able to say what you want to say. Um, so I'd say it's useful, I'd say it's good, I'd say it's valuable i i would say it's not a necessity that is an interesting idea i had not thought of that because i would i wouldn't say push back about that against that but like i just have a different idea but i guess one thing we can agree on is 
or I guess, let me ask you this. Um, what are your thoughts on like traditional vocabulary instruction? So like how you learned it in secondary education? So this is interesting because my, um, the method that I was taught vocabulary actually kind of changed halfway through my high school years. Uh, I don't know if it did for you because you were in different programs than me, but my, my first two years, we were kind of looking at Latin and Greek roots for words and suffixes, prefixes alike. Um, and then after that, that just kind of stopped and it became more like just knowing the words. And I think that that first way where you're looking at the roots is infinitely better um, because it creates kind of a, a mutual intelligibility almost where uh, you have these parts of words um, that you can apply and understand the meanings of other words if you don't know them. So I would say that was something that very much shaped me as a writer. Uh, and uh, my vocabulary is those lessons on the, the Greek and Latin influences in our language. I did have a different kind of experience with that, but uh, that's just because Spanish uses a lot of Latin roots. So I kind of ended up in a similar place of learning Latin roots, but just not Greek roots. Um, so and just kind of like being able to decode words uh, based on that. that. That is interesting that that was helpful to you, but just maybe not necessary, I guess. I mean, I know you did put that into your writing. And another thing I uh, I really appreciated just personally about you in your writing is uh, in one of the works that we were working on, your uh, fiction work, there was a character who was non-binary. And there was... And there was some research about kind of that diversity and having that, especially with like LGBTQ plus representation, uh, specifically with uh, Rhoda Bejeza, an author talks about um, in looking for young adult literature, they are looking for kind of LGBTQ plus representation and also stuff for black kids and Latinx kids and sex positive works for uh, teens and young adult literature, because that's not something that's super common. So uh, what do you think? Is like the significance of including a character that was non-binary in your story. Well, I I, uh, I do identify as non-binary for it. I use he they pronouns. And I think it's twofold. First of all, I as well as wanting to include a character that breaks gender norms without the story being about that. Um, the character in question is the Merlin, um, you know, the wizard from Arthurian mythology. And the way I've, I I wanted to write the Merlin was as a kind of an ancient being that predates humanity, and I don't see why that needs a gender, so I just thought it would be appropriate to use neutral language for the Merlin. Um, but also, it's just cool to have, and this is something I, I love when I see in literature, because it's simply not very common, it's fun to see a character from a minority group of any sort um, that exists without that identity defining them. Um, the book, uh, oh geez, what's the book? Uh, Serafina, I believe it's called, um, does something very similar. Ser yeah, Serafina um, does something very similar where you've got a, a marginalized character, they are a lesbian, but it's not their only trait, which I think sometimes authors will do is reduce those characters to that aspect of their identity in an attempt to be progressive that just fails. Um, so basically, it's just it's an insertion of a real character that how, I, I, I just want it to be more real than a lot of these fictional LGBT characters. Well, that is really empowering. I like that, of bringing some reality to fiction stuff. Now, I guess this is technically also a debate that might be happening, but do you think that's good 
to bring into the classroom uh, for students to talk about kind of that representation in writing as well? I think so. Absolutely. I do not believe there's a subject that can't be taught without bringing in some representation. I think it's very valuable too. I think if you can bring representation in without forcing it in, um, I think it's very valuable. I think it helps normalize that representation. And there's certainly a place, a very important place for stories where that is a, def- like identity is a defining characteristic, but I think there's a very valuable place for stories where it's just another characteristic of a person as well. I'm just kind of curious, were there any, um, was there any literature that you read growing up that kind of had some diversity or you think lacked some diversity? I think growing up, a lot of my literature didn't have a lot of diversity. You know, there's, there's Harry Potter with the fake diversity that got added by J.K. Rowling's tweets. Um, I'd say one of the biggest books that I read, I, I won't even say growing up because it was in high school, but it's a book that was really important to me, um, is Serafina by Rachel Hartman in that, that series, um, which includes a, a lesbian character, a transgender character, a sexual character. Um, without making it their only characteristic. Um, I think that kind of stuck out to me, just the casual normalization and inclusion of um, minority identities. Yeah, it does sound like that. Uh, I guess like that series really inspired you from what I'm hearing, but I never Absolutely knew that. Did. Yeah, I never knew. No, we hadn't talked about it. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite series. I, I put it, honestly, very close to His Dark Materials, which I've talked to you about a couple times, is to Philip. Oh yeah, I I know about his dark materials. Oh yeah, I I I totally recommend. Um, I don't remember the name of the franchise. It was the franchise itself is just called Serafina or not? But the first book is called Serafina, and it's by Rachel Hartman. So I guess going back to uh, the classroom and kind of things you can implement there, uh, there has been some research uh, written by um, Fiende Smith, uh, Steve Graham, and Hild von Kier about kind of having that this partner based writing where you can. Or just like peer-based um, or peer-assisted writing of it, just because it kind of helps nurture students' needs and um, it like can increase their motivation and also uh, autonomy. Um, without probably having read that, what are your thoughts on implementing peer-assisted writing or peer-assisted feedback in the classrooms? I think it's good. I I think um, I think it, overall it's going to be very good. Um, I do, I do think consideration should be taken of both students' writing abilities, or all the students' writing abilities when you pair them up, because I think it can be very frustrating for an advanced writer to be paired with somebody who maybe isn't as advanced, uh, for both parties. Um, so I think you want to be careful of whom you're pairing with who, uh, and make a conscious decision as whether or not you want, like, gaps in the, the writing level of the peers or not. Um, and I think there's benefits to both and cons to both. Um, but I think having somebody else who can catch you for errors, uh, critique your work and bounce ideas off of is, is innately helpful. Very, very good to have. I think it'd be great in classrooms. And I wish I'd had more of that peer to peer writing in high school. I guess you're just making me think of, uh, what we kind of did for feedback. So this is the point where you get to destroy me as a teacher and crush everything about me but what were your thoughts well first of all can you just describe uh how we went about feedback for writing and then say uh what are your thoughts on that process what did you like what did you not like etc 
Yeah, well, basically, you and I were uh, meeting every week. You'd take a look at something I'd written, whether it was something I'd written in my own time or something fictional, something academic I'd done for school. Um, and you'd talk to me about it. You'd ask me questions. You'd, you'd make notes of uh, areas where my writing was weaker or stronger, um, any edits that I needed to make or clarifying points that you needed to see. Uh, and we'd talk about the writing, talk about the future of the writing uh, and the background of the writing. Um, I, I appreciated having you as a teacher. I thought you were effective. Um, I think you need, I think it would serve you well to be a little less merciless. I, uh, I think you were very cautious about critiquing my work. And I don't know if that's because we are friends or if it's, uh, because you're insecure currently doing that as a teacher. But I don't think you should hesitate to say things as they are in your students' writings. I think you should say it as clearly and simply as you can when something needs to be changed instead of sugarcoating or dancing around it. So I, I think you uh, need some balls, Hayes. I have none, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I could definitely improve that of, I guess, how I phrase criticism, because I've just been trying to avoid a lot of, uh, I guess, what I saw in education, what I... I guess despised. Yeah, despised is the word oh. I want. I despised an education of kind of uh, the abrasiveness of it all or the... Right. Well, I I think there's a, a line between, you know, being a, a clear and non-sugarcoating about what needs to change and being cruel. And I think it can be a fine line. It sounds like some of your teachers might have crossed that line, but I, I think you'd be very aware of it if you were willing to try being a little more harsh and... And I don't even mean harsh as in harsh, but I mean you were you were so cautious with your criticism with me. I think. Uh, um, yeah. Do you straightforward think... maybe is what I mean? Okay, straightforward. Yeah, I was about to ask is like maybe more frequent in criticism, or maybe because if it was too sparing. But I'll try more direct. Being it's more not, direct. It's yeah. It's not the frequency. I think you were scared to say things straight up. Okay, work on that. There's always something to improve. Thank you for that. So I guess one thing, kind of talking about like improvement and such, um, there was something I saw from uh, Stephen B. Heller about uh, trying a skills-based approach to literacy, to reading and writing, um, where it's you focus on assessments as kind of minimum performance instead of maximum performance, whereas, which is what's so commonly, um, I guess, seen or viewed, uh, and you have to kind of improve your maximum instead of steadily increasing your minimum. What are your thoughts on changing that viewpoint, or do you think it's already there? Um, I, I would say a, a floor for skills is important, and that you'd want your students to meet that floor. But I think you should acknowledge their strengths as well, instead of saying, just since congratulations, you have hit this benchmark. I think if a student does something exceptionally, or even marginally better than everybody else, I think that should be commended and recognized. Um, not everybody else, but average. Um, so I, I, I think a, my view on a, a skill floor, skill-based floor, is that I think it's important because it gives you some grounds for which to evaluate students as writers because writing is so subjective. I do think that the floors should be very soft, um, and I don't think there should be too much repercussion if a student cannot meet a floor. Because people, not everybody is a natural writer or interested in writing, and that is perfectly okay. But I do think it's it's important for evaluating and, and seeing where students need to work on their skills. Yeah, that is true. I am learning just more about that. Um, 
I guess one thing I do want to bring up is there has been um, a lot of research, like this is more vague, but um, some research I've been reading about like some of, uh, of what we've been talking about has been de- has been geared toward um, emerging bilinguals. Like, so people who are still kind of learning English or getting a grasp on it. And as someone who is has different experience for me, um, what do you think could be some ways to uh, teach emerging bilinguals or how to teach them writing and reading? Um, well, first of all, I think for bilinguals whose first language is not the language they are being taught in, um, I think I'm not going to say throw the floor away, but I am saying put it in the basement. Okay, um, <laughs> that's good. Because I, I think you need to have a lot of leniency with them as writers because it is so difficult to learn a second language. I think you should just build their writing skills as you would with any other student. Um, certainly, I think you should be much more um, willing to be patient with them as they build their skills uh, and aware that there's no, like, everybody's coming from a different place language-wise and writing-wise, and some of it will convert into other languages more easily than other languages. So I think it's just just have patience with emerging bilinguals. That is some really wise words. I wish that, um, that is one thing I wish as a pre-service teacher to be more patient with students, because that's something that, again, I disdained about my schooling, but the, that I would hope to do better. Now, now I'm going to get more academic and tell you about what uh what the, what the smart person words are for throwing the floor away and locking it in the basement. So there is um, some research by uh, Dongling Fu and a couple of other authors who I cannot remember their names right now, apologies, um, where they wrote about the process of translanguaging the classroom. And they would have sometimes these case studies uh, where they would have real classroom examples where they implemented translanguaging and it just worked out well. But it's translanguaging is just a bourgeois term for um, letting a student use their language in the classroom and not necessarily assessing them based on their grasp and assimilation of English, but rather their uh, content and writing skills. And that may be, I guess, easier for me because um, I'm like, oh, yeah, I could do that. I speak multiple languages. It'll be fine. But um, do you feel like that's um, that could be like translanguaging could be a viable uh, pedagogical approach, uh, even for monolingual teachers. I think so. I mean, honestly, the the thing you're looking for in these instances, I think, is not so much mastery of language as it is you're looking to see growth. So I think it absolutely is viable, to say the least. Uh, I, I would almost say it should be encouraged. I think. I think in the case of of Emerging bilinguals, I think, what, trans, translanguage, trans, what is it? Is it? Uh, it was translanguaging, but yeah. Translanguaging, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pro- very more than appropriate, as long as you're seeing growth, uh, if you're using that as your mindset. That is something I still need to, I guess, focus on or unlearn from all the, the grading that has happened from schooling. But I absolutely agree. It should be, um, assessment is focused on growth instead of, um, what it currently is, I would say. Um, So I guess one thing I wanted to kind of uh, end us off with is, I guess um, this is the part where I uh, get to criticize you and talk about you (laughs) Um, in in the nicest way possible, of course. Um, 
one thing I think that you have uh, grown in, speaking of growing in things, um, is your stamina in writing. And I know you said that your stamina was kind of the opposite that it is in reading, but I feel like you're they're getting closer to each other. They may not be there yet, but you're getting closer to it because you wrote the most that I've ever seen you write in this time span of a few months, um, which is really incredible. And I, I didn't, I, it was like a wonderful surprise, like a jovial surprise for me. Uh, I was just thrilled by it. And I guess the main thing that made me realize that was the play you wrote. So can you talk about what that is for the second? for a second, like what your play is, introduce it, and just kind of how that writing process started. Yeah, so I wrote a, uh, a one-act play uh, about the notable 19th century philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, who is a member, was, was a member of a very wealthy Austrian family that experienced a lot of trauma within the family. Um, so I, I wrote a play focusing on Wittgenstein and his relationships and dynamics with his family. Uh, as he lost more and more of his brothers as the years went by, either the suicide or um, fleeing Europe because of the Nazi invasion. Lots of research obviously went into this, since it is a historical play. Um, for my process, it was just, um, I, I, I outlined it first. I, I picked episodes of Wittgenstein's life that I wanted to look, look at and examine for this play, um, and I knew I wanted to do it through the lens of his family his relationships with people. Um, so once I did that, it was, it was kind of just sitting down, um, structuring the scene, adding the dialogue, and then examining the dialogue to make sure it was era appropriate. Uh, because we're talking about period. I think the play, my play, uh, is, goes between 1901 and 1963. So making sure the language fit with the, their upbringing and their environments at the various times of the play. Yeah, and that was something we both talked about in um, our feedback, where I need to be more direct on about, the, I guess, that language. Um, but I thought, honestly, like after reading it, I thought your play turned out really well. Um, it was, this is going to sound so colloquial, but it was awesome. Like, <laughs> it just filled me I with really awe. Appreciate that. Yeah, I was like, you're writing this much in such short time. Because it was like, how long was it? How long did it take to write it, actually? Uh, it was over the course of a month. Maybe not a month, but it was certainly a amount of time. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was, it was just not all. I didn't sit down and do it all at once. Yeah, no, it was just a few weeks. But that's that's really important with stamina. I'm finding from all of the research is you start kind of slow and then you speed up that process. It's like a little marathon, basically. Yeah, I guess that is fantastic. I appreciate that and appreciate seeing you grow so much. Um, did you have any final thoughts you wanted to add on this whole process, what it was like and, or what would you do differently if you were to do this again? I, you know, I don't think I do have any thoughts. Um, I think it was a very good process for both of us. And, uh, it's always nice to have a little weekly check-in with you and get some outside perspective on my work. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot too, getting to see your work. It was great. But yeah, thank you all so much for joining us on the podcast this time. And, uh, we'll see you all next time. See ya. Yeah. Thank you very much.